Well, it's been two years now since I've been here in Ohio. And I've been learning the way that people in Ohio think. You know, I'm from Michigan, so we don't think the same way. There's some things I, I've been learning that I understand about people in Ohio. There's some things that I don't understand. For example, one thing that I don't understand about people in Ohio is why you, and you do this. I, I actually did it because of the peer pressure, you see, because you do this. In, in, you know, like in July, you will get in your car. You'll travel like 12 or 13 hours to drive to South Carolina so you can go to the beach for the week. And so I did that last year. It was just like a horrible idea. I don't know why you do this. Okay, it's crazy because the reality is I went down there. It was so hot down there. You couldn't even enjoy yourself. And on top of that, there's this beautiful water that's there, but it's, it's filled with jellyfish that time of the year. You cannot even use the water. Nobody goes in. So now you're so hot, you're sweating profusely. You got beautiful water you can't use. You're spending all this money. And I think this does not make any sense. Okay. Does not make any sense at all. Rather, a better idea would be to drive six hours north, go to Michigan. And I'll tell you what. There's a place there called Saugatuck. Our, one of our favorite places is right on the water there. And here's the beautiful thing. The weather's beautiful. You can actually go in the water. Nothing will bite you. Nothing will eat you. Okay? And you can actually you know, spend like half the money and have a better time. And so I just want to encourage you to just think about that next summer. Instead of going down south, it'll, it'll, it'll pay off for you. Trust me. And so it was some years ago. When Carol and I were eating in Saugatuck, we just love it there. Our kids were being watched by my parents, and uh, so we're eating at our favorite restaurant right on the water. And, uh, and then it's time for us to go. Had to head back home. So it's about a 25, 30-minute drive from Saugatuck to Holland. And there's two routes that you can take. You can take the highway. That's the fastest route. Or you can take the scenic route that goes straight through the woods. Beautiful woods, right, you know, by the dunes and everything. It's gorgeous. And so we thought, you know, it's a beautiful day. We'll do that. Now, on this road that you take uh, back to Holland from Saugatuck, it's a straight shot. There's no stop signs, lights, or anything. You just keep going. There are roads that intersect with that main major road, but uh, you don't have to stop. And so on that day, we're driving. Carol is actually here in the passenger seat. She's so comfortable. She's sitting back. She's got her feet up on the dashboard. Okay, we're just enjoying a good time. I'm driving. The window down, breeze blowing in my face. The sun is shining. And I remember driving down that road. We're just having a great conversation. I remember looking up at the blue of the sky and just thinking how beautiful it all is. When suddenly everything went black. I couldn't see anything at all. I could hear. And I heard the sounds of chaos. Heard the sounds of crunching metal. Squeals. And then suddenly everything just went silence. And then I heard, and I thought, what in the world is going on? What in the world is going on? The airbag deflated from my face and I turned to my right to see Carol, who was struggling to even breathe. You see, she had seen it coming. 
Just in a blink of an eye, a fraction of a second, she had seen this car coming through our intersection. I never saw it at all. And so she put her feet up against the glass to protect herself. Because this car that was coming from the beach to our left, there was a warning sign for the stop sign. And then there was the stop sign itself. It didn't see any of those signs. They've been drinking. And they went through and they barreled through that intersection over 50 miles an hour. And we collided with them. And so now Carol's getting out of the car and she's trying to breathe over here. I'm so jammed and stuck in my, in my seat there. I can't move. The car had been so demolished. I'm just jammed in there. And so now she catches her breath. She sees how I'm doing. And then she starts running towards that car. There was a woman who was driving this old car, one of these boat-type cars. Uh, she had now gotten out of the car. Blood is pouring down her head. She's screaming. Carol ran down to see where she was and how she was doing. And it's then that she discovered the four children that were in the back seat that were not seat belted in. And it was there that she discovered the passenger, this woman's mother, the grandmother to these children who were there as well. And she talked to her for a moment, ran back to me. She says, there's children in the back seat. They're badly wounded. She says, I think the passenger in the front is dead. And in the midst of all this, I'm looking around. It's like this horrible dream. I'm looking at it from a distance. It's not even real. And I can't even figure it out. I never saw a thing coming. How in the world could this be? Suddenly the ambulances began to show up. And then came the helicopters who came in to take these children to the hospital in order to save their lives. And in the midst of all this, I looked down and I saw my knee. It didn't even, it didn't, wasn't hurting me at all. It just, in the middle of all my shock. And you see in this accident, I had lunged forward and the key of the ignition was sticking straight out. It sliced my knee wide open, filleted open. You could see everything on the inside. And now years have passed. And I see that scar on my knee. It reminds me of that family. Reminds me sometimes to pray for that family because they lost their grandmother that day. And I look at that knee and it reminds me of that day. That day that it seemed like everything was going great. And I never saw it coming. I was completely taken over by surprise. You ever have a day like that? Today, in light of that, Peter has some words for us. And I'd like you to take them in because they apply to all of us. Perhaps not right now, but they apply to all of us. These are words speaking to us, wise words for our future. He writes, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I'll read that again. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See, here Peter is reminding us, he's saying, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are because we are followers of Jesus Christ. We are tested. That's who we are. In fact, he reminds us not to be surprised by these various tests that come our way. He says they're coming, and the first lesson for us is this, that testing produces Christ-likeness. Testing produces Christ-likeness. 
You see, in the verses preceding this and the sections preceding this, we have been learning who we are. And we've been learning, of course, that we need to be a people who submit. In fact, we spent two weeks on submission. We've been learning that we need to be a people who radically love others around us. We've been learning that we need to be a people who serve. In fact, Patrick talked about that last week, how we need to be all in, dive all in to serve one another. And now Peter tells us that we are a people who are tested. So the question is this, what's the link between submitting, loving, serving, and being tested? Well, the link is Jesus Christ. See, Jesus perfectly submitted himself to his father, loved others completely, and served others that most people wouldn't even want to touch. And what was the outcome of all of this doing good to others and treating others with love? What's the outcome for him? He was tested. And if this happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to us. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus... He faced all these tests that says, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Think about this. This is Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, learning something. He's learning obedience because of these tests that come his way. And so Peter's telling us, don't be surprised. Do not be surprised when in your attempts to follow Jesus Christ, you are tested for your faith. This happened to the rabbi that you are following. It's going to happen to you as his disciple. The question is this. Will you be willing to learn from your times of testing just like Jesus was? One of the members of our shepherding team wrote me about a week and a half ago, and he wrote this. He says, I found that when I don't learn like Jesus did, God often provides me more testing of the same kind until I do learn. Can you relate to that? And why do we relate to that? Well, because we don't want to be tested. We don't want to be tested. And in light of this, Peter knows this, which is why he calls us dear friends. Now, in the Greek, dear friends carries with it the idea that we are those who are deeply loved by God. Do you know that you are deeply, deeply loved by God? In fact, God loves you so much that he would save you. God loves you so much that he would refine you through these various tests that come your way. And how do these tests come? What is Peter talking about? Well, many times, of course, this, this verse is taken out of context. You see, Peter here is not talking about the normal challenges of life. He's not talking about you waking up in the morning and finding out your water heater is not working, so you have to take a cold shower that morning. I mean, it's a bummer, but he's not talking about that kind of test. He's not talking about you getting in your car to drive to work one day and suddenly your car breaks down on the side of the highway. It's a bummer, but he's not talking about that kind of a test. He's not talking about the normal challenges of life. Rather, he's talking about the natural challenges that a true follower of Jesus Christ will face as a result of declaring and making Jesus Lord in your life. And he's saying for every person who truly follows Jesus, who truly makes him Lord, you are not to be surprised when these tests come your way. But here's the problem, especially for us as American Christians. We're behind the wheel, and we're driving down the highway of our Christian life. We got the window down, the breeze blowing in our face, the sun is shining, everything seems to be going great, and we are not even expecting 
that our culture might collide with us coming from the right or coming from the left. We're clueless many times. And Peter does not want us being surprised. That's why he wants us learning from these people to whom he's writing to in the first century. In fact, Chuck Colson, the late, great Chuck Colson, what an amazing man, came to Christ later in life. And he he spoke and he talked about the fact that in the early church, in the first century, if you lived back then, and if you were to stand in the market square and you were to declare that Jesus is God, so everyone could hear you, nobody would really care. You see, because the Romans, the Greeks back then, they worshipped so many different gods, they couldn't even keep track of them. So what's the harm of adding one more to the mix? But if you stood up in the market square and you declared that Jesus is Lord, suddenly you'd put your whole life at risk. Because the Caesars had already declared themselves to be Lord. And you were to call them Lord, not anyone else. And if you did, it probably meant the end of your life. So how does that relate to us as we fast forward 2,000 years? How does that relate to us? Well, I'd like you to repeat after me a word. I'd like you to repeat this word. It's a word you know well. And so will you all just say, Jesus. Now say it with passion. Jesus. Jesus. Here's the question I have for you. When is the last time that name was uttered from your lips in your workplace? When is the last time you spoke the name of Jesus to the neighbors that you live by? When's the last time that name was spoken from your lips when you're standing in line at King's Island? When's the last time you've spoken the name of Jesus outside a church? See, the Bible is really clear. It's really clear. And the Bible tells us that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we often say, well, Jesus lives where? In our heart. So if our mouth is not speaking the name of Jesus, what does that say about our hearts? And you see, you move forward 2,000 years from what I just talked about, and we inherently know how the whole deal works. That's why many Christians don't speak the name of Jesus. In order to be spiritual, in order to be good Christians, we use God language, right? You show up to work and you say, boy, didn't God make a beautiful day today? And everyone goes, yeah, it's beautiful. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. You might say, well, God is good. And people go, yeah, yeah, he's good. Nobody's bothered by that. But if you say, you know, I'm following Jesus in my life. Here's what Jesus has been teaching me. Jesus is my Lord. Suddenly the walls start to go up. And suddenly you're branded by some as being, you know, closed-minded, prideful, intolerant, arrogant. Have you noticed? You've noticed, probably. Which is why the name of Jesus hasn't been spoken from our lips. And we are living in a culture, friends, that, that is changing and it's morphing. And if we are not careful... We're going to be surprised. And then one day we're going to face and the airbag deflates from our face and we look around and go, how in the world did this happen to us? And Peter's warning to us is this, be alert, be aware of what's going on and stay completely devoted to Jesus Christ. So have you been noticing? 
About six weeks ago, I came home one day. I think it was on a Friday. I came home. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I happened to walk into my bedroom. I turned the TV on. I don't watch the TV on a Friday afternoon. Um, you know, in my bedroom, I just don't. I just happened to put it on. And it happened to be on a station that was broadcasting a, a news event. They were interviewing President Obama live. And I happened to show up at the last question. They basically asked him, okay, what did you think about the Pope's visit here? What did you think of the Pope? And then our president begins to answer that question. Now what he's talking here about, let's make it clear, this is not about you know, being a Democrat or a Republican. What he's speaking now is pop culture. What he's speaking now are words and thoughts and processes that are so popular in our world today that many Christians are buying it. In fact, even our president in the middle of this news conference says, as a Christian, and then he begins to talk about the types of things you're going to see in just a moment. Do you know who you are? Do you know whose you are? And are you aware of what's going on in the world right outside these windows? I want you to listen to our president's response. I want you to take in every single word. It's not a great video, but take it as words, and let's then talk about it. Pope Francis, I love him. Um, he is a good man with a warm heart and a big moral imagination. And then that's part of the wonderful thing about Pope Francis is, is the humility that he brings to this. Um, you know, his rejection of uh, the absolutism that says I'm 100% right and you're 100% wrong but rather we are all sinners and we are all children of God and you know, that's a pretty good starting point for being better that's a good starting point for being better the first thing I notice is what's being praised here is having a moral, a big moral imagination. Since when did morals need an imagination? Aren't morals right, wrong, murder? Is murder not clear anymore? Stealing, is that not clear anymore? There's no right and wrong anymore? We need a, a moral imagination. So as he's saying, when your tax bill comes... This year, and you kind of get that in the mail, you kind of say, you know what, well, I used to think that it would be wrong not to pay my taxes, but now because I have a big moral imagination, I don't have to pay them any longer. How do you think that's going to work out for you? You see, what he's talking about here is not those kinds of things right now. What he's talking about is having a moral imagination when it comes to how we deal with God. That's what he's talking about. That's what he says. He's praising in his own mind. I'm not sure the Pope would agree with what he's saying. But he's talking about how the Pope is so humble that he would know that things aren't so clear anymore. And as a result of that, we are all children of God. Which means we're all going to heaven. Which means then you don't even have to believe in God and you're a child of God. You can believe whatever you want to about God and you're a child of God. You're just going to heaven. And what that means, just so we're clear, 
is that Jesus Christ came and died on a cross 2,000 years ago for no good reason at all. Because Jesus is not Lord, you see. Jesus is just somebody who happened to say some good things who's down here on the level with whatever else anyone else seems to think about anything. Friends, are you noticing what's happening in our culture? Are you aware? Are you alert? Because if you're not, you're going to be surprised. You see, we are strangers, friends, in our own culture. And Peter says we're going to be tested if we truly stand up for Jesus. We're tested because we've become strange to this world. We're tested, friends, because our values are different. Our mission is different. We're going to be tested because we are willing to declare who Jesus is and why he came. You see, Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And this world hears that kind of language and wants to shut it down. And the reason that we will drive down the highway of our Christian life and conflict now with this culture that will come from the left and the right is because our culture is against Jesus. And as a result, they're against anyone who would truly, truly want to follow him. So we're going to be tested, Peter says. And when we're tested, like, how do we respond? So Peter says, rejoice. Inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you're insulted because of him, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So Peter says, testing produces Christ-likeness. But now he's saying, testing produces blessing. Blessing, in fact, in verses 13 and 14, he's talking about three blessings here. First would be the blessing of celebration. He says, rejoice. So we celebrate. And what are we celebrating about? We're celebrating that we know who Jesus is. And the more we follow him, the more we become like him, is the more we love him. That's why we celebrate. We have the blessing of celebration. We also have the blessing of participation. He's saying we get to participate in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, which means the road he walked, we get to walk. Everything he faced, we get to face. And when we finally understand that, then we experience the third blessing, dispensation. Dispensation. You see, he's saying that the Holy Spirit so rests on us as believers, we have all the power needed to dispense the gospel of Jesus Christ to this fallen world. And when we live out these three blessings of celebration, participation, dispensation, we're going to be tested. And when we're tested, it's going to show who the Christians really are, friends. Here's another way to look at it. Suffer now, glory later. Suffer now, glory later. This is the same path that Jesus walked, you see. Paul wrote, and being found in appearance as a man, he, meaning Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He suffered. The glory's coming. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Suffer now glory later and the glory that is to come is far greater than you and i can even imagine as we're sitting here right now 
We're blessed, he says. We experience blessing of celebration, participation, dispensation. See, I don't know how you're going to be tested. I don't know how I'm going to be tested. But here's what I know. If you truly love Christ, if you truly are following Christ, if you truly want to be like Christ, you're going to be tested. You're going to suffer. And Peter writes, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. Praise God. So he's saying testing produces Christ likeness. Testing produces blessing. And now he's saying testing produces praise. You're not to be ashamed, but you are to praise God. You're counted worthy to bear that name. He's saying, if you truly live for Christ and you end up suffering, perhaps even get a cross on your back, just like Christ, praise God that you're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, the one who's highly exalted. And in the midst of our praising then, why is praise so important in the midst of our testing, in the midst of our suffering? Why praise? Why is that so important? There's a song I used to listen to when I was in high school, sung by the Imperials, bringing me way back. Lyrics I've taken with me since I've been a teenager because they get to the heart of what Peter's talking about here. When you're up against a struggle that shatters all your dreams and your hopes have been cruelly crushed by Satan's manifested scheme and you feel the urge within you to submit to earthly fears, don't let the faith you're standing in seem to disappear. Praise the Lord. He can work through those who praise him. Praise the Lord. For our God inhabits praise. Praise the Lord. For the chains that seem to bind you serve only to remind you that they drop powerless behind you when you praise him. So in the midst of your test, even though this world might come and chain you up, in the middle of all of that, the chains that seem to bind you, serve only to remind you they drop powerless behind you when you praise him. Because when you are praising God in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of the test, you're taking your eyes off of the chains and you're placing them upon the one who can set you free. Testing produces praise. And then there's this odd transition because now Peter moves from you know praising God to being judged by God. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And here he's talking about the fact that testing produces purity. Purity. Now you might think, well, Phil, where do you see purity in verses 17 and 18? I I don't see, I see judgment. I don't see purity we see there's two types of judgment in the bible the judgment for those who are not believers and a very different kind of judgment for those who are and that kind of judgment produces purity malachi 3 3 says he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver he will purify the levites and refine them like gold and silver Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. So the only way for you and I to bring offerings of righteousness before the Lord is for us first 
to be made pure by him. And so Peter's basically asking, he's saying, okay, if the tests we face as Christians are part of our purification process then, how much worse will it be on the day of judgment for those who have never followed him and therefore who have never been made pure in God's eyes? Those who reject Jesus now will suffer more later than you and I even want to think about. But that's also, friends, why God is so incredibly patient with us. In his second letter, Peter wrote, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And how do all these millions of people come to repentance? By God calling them and drawing them to himself. And through you and I declaring that Jesus is Lord. That's how. Peter then writes, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. He's talking about the fact that testing produces commitment. In the midst of your suffering, it's going to cause you to be even more committed. So we learn this in our lives, don't we? Only those things that actually cost us something matter to us. Have you found that to be true? Your marriage, a good marriage, costs you something. Sometimes there's suffering in the midst of that, but it costs you something, and you're even more committed to it as a result. Somebody who runs a marathon, I mean, they go through all kinds of suffering, right, in order to get to that day where they kind of cross that finish line. What costs us something matters to us most. And that's why he's saying in the midst of your suffering, you're going to grow in commitment, and you're going to stay faithful to God, and to doing good, even in the midst of your tests and your trials. Why? Because of the theme he's been talking to us about. Suffer now, glory later. See, friends, we are tested. That's who we are. And so we don't drive down the highway of our Christian life being clueless, thinking everything's great, not expecting any kind of collisions of any kind. No, we know they're coming. Because our culture collides with Jesus Christ. And as a result, it collides with anyone who follows him. We are tested. And in the midst of all that, we are blessed. About three weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit with a pastor from another country who's faced a great deal of testing for his faith. I want you to listen to a bit of his story. You're going to have to listen in very, very closely. He's got an accent. Listen in very closely because here is a man who knows the truth about what Peter has been teaching us today. And as you listen to him, think about you. Does Jesus make that much of a difference in your own life? That you would go through whatever comes your way in order to stay fully committed to him and to doing good? Let's watch. I'm called Emmanuel Ndolimana. I come from the country of Rwanda. I am a pastor, church planting, going to villages, planting churches. I'm married to one wife. Her name is Esperance, and God has blessed us with four children. I am from Rwanda, on the western part of the country. 
in a place called Giseni, which shares the border of the Congo. And then in 1994, Rwanda is known about the genocide that happened. We had over a million people killed. My family got affected. The rebels came, attacked the village, and they began to kill people. I was one of the people who was taken to be killed. So I, we are driven out of the, the village, and uh, on the way I had the voice telling me like to flee for my life. So I jumped first off the, the road. There was like a, a cliff. My cousin came following me, who was shot and just dead and fell on top of me. And other people were trying to flee, kept covering me. So they began to kill everybody in the group. We are a group about 50 to 60 people. I, try, I tried to push to come out of the bodies, which took long, and I finally managed until I went to one of the villages. So I ended up being a homeless street kid on the street. So every day was survival, and thank God who forgives and uh, restores, but it was not easy. Ended up uh, finding help from church through missionaries we are visiting. They gave me uh, $160. I began a small business. I was selling things like candies, biscuits, um, sugar, uh, rice. God bless the business. I was able to pay my school fees, uniform, all necessary. Completed my high school, but still on fire for God. I felt God's call into my life to, to be in full-time ministry. And I ended up going to Uganda for a Bible school. It's unique that we are doing is that God has called us to serve in post-conflict nations. As a Christian, I'm willing to suffer, to suffer for Christ because of what Christ has done. Christ suffered for me, suffered for us to give us salvation. And he said, we are not above our master. And he told us in the world, uh, they'll persecute us, we'll face all these trials, and we are not above our master. So as a believer, when we face these trials and persecution in the world, we have to know that it's expected when you are doing the right things, you are walking in the right way of faith, uh, no matter how much you try to stay at, away from trouble or persecution, persecution will come your way. Number one, because when you you get saved, it's like you are declaring a war on yourself. I mean, what I mean is the devil persecution. Do I identify whom am I? Am I to identify with the cross, with the Bible, or do I have to identify with the culture, what my culture says? So as a pastor, I've been blamed many times and attacked by like Muslim families that you are leading away our people. Uh, I have several examples. When I was baptized, one of the boys who got saved, his name is Ramadan. He got saved in the month of Ramadan, which is fasting. I was baptizing him in Lake Kivu, and some Muslim men came to attack me, like, Pastor, we'll kill you, threatening, we'll kill you. You, you are shaming us, converting our kids, our children, you know, they can decide for themselves. You don't force them to, to be saved. But those are threats, but uh, they don't discourage us because we feel when we are doing the right things, we, we have to keep on doing it. And when it comes, you don't have to be discouraged. 
Uh, I have to know that Christ has won the war, and it's not my battle Christ already won. Uh, so as a believer, uh, when persecution comes, I, I keep have to keep on going because I know the devil will not fi- fight his own camp. That means an indicator that I'm on the right track, and all I have is to pray and have faith in Christ that he has won. 